Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, etc., and welcome to episode one of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a retro game I used to play back when I was younger, or maybe a modern game that I've played recently. If you're listening to this show, I wanted to take a moment and thank you, truly. I really appreciate you taking a chance on the Retro Wildlands and giving us a listen. This podcast has been kind of in an idea phase for me for almost a year now. It's something I've really thought about doing. I did some work for it kind of here and there, but it really got going in the last three or four months, and I'm really excited to see what you guys think of this. I really feel like this show is going to offer you some value, so I'm really hoping that you get some enjoyment out of it. Before we get into the podcast itself, I wanted to give everybody kind of a peek behind the scenes on exactly what it is that I'm working on over here in the Wildlands. So this episode, our episode number one, if you saw the title, we are going to be talking about the original Resident Evil on the Sony PlayStation. I'll get into it in the actual uh, game talk itself, but this game is one that really left a mark on me when I was younger and is probably one of the most pivotal games in my gaming career because it was one of those games that started me down the journey of a gamer. I played a lot of older games when I was younger on the original Super Nintendo, the original Nintendo, Game Boy, Game Boy Advanced, all those older consoles, but It wasn't until the Sony PlayStation where I really started to make gaming a big part of my life, and Resident Evil was one of those games that was the catalyst for a lot of that, so that's going to be the first game we're going to talk about in this episode. Episodes coming up that I have in the works right now, I want to do an episode on The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past on the Super Nintendo. Every gamer out there has one of those games that they've just, they love to death, but maybe they've never finished, and A Link to the Past has always been that one game for me. Alright, if you, if, if you haven't shut the podcast off at that, I thank you for sticking around. I am kind of ashamed of that, but I've gone back to it, and I've almost finished it. I'm in the dark world right now, and I have one more crystal to get, and then I think I have the final fight with Ganon at the end, so... I'm almost done with it, and I want to talk about that on an episode. I've also thought about doing uh, another episode on Parasite Eve for the original PlayStation. I'm going to start some shameless uh, shameless plugs here on the podcast. I do have a, a YouTube channel where I do more in-depth reviews on some retro games, and Parasite Eve is going to be my first episode over on YouTube, so I thought it'd be kind of fitting to do an audio podcast to go along with that as well. So I do know those two at least are in the pipeline, but we've got some more that I'm thinking about, so just wanted to give you guys a taste of what's been coming up. What have I been playing, too? I kind of wanted to give you guys an idea of what I'm playing currently. It hasn't been much, just because I've been prepping and, and doing things for the podcast, and now that I think I'm over the big hump, I'll start to be able to put my time more into different games that I'm playing. But I am obviously playing A Legend of Zelda right now. I'm almost finished with it, and I want to prepare a podcast for it. I'm also playing um, uh, an indie game called Unmetal. And I I really do want to do an episode on this, although I don't think the game is super popular. But those of you that have played it, or rather have not played it, it's a lot like Metal Gear. The older Metal Gear games on the Nintendo that I played, like Metal Gear and Snake's Revenge, that top-down stealth retro style. That's what Unmetal's like. And it has 
stolen my heart, for lack of better terminology. It's a fantastic game, it's extremely well written, the voice acting is hilarious, and I've never been more vested in a game before than Unmetal. It's absolutely stolen my heart, and I think it's going to be one of my top games of all time. That's high praise for an indie game, I know, um, and probably not even a popular one at that, but I absolutely love it, and I'd love to do an episode on it, so curious if you guys would like that. And before we get into the Resident Evil talk, I do need to shamelessly plug my social media. Uh, I have started some social media around the podcast to get some exposure and to try to give uh, listeners an outlet to talk about the podcast or even get a hold of me. So we're on Instagram and Twitter, at Retro Wildlands. I've only ever really done Facebook uh, for family and friends and things like that, but even then I haven't posted anything on Facebook for probably a couple years now, so I'm a little social media rusty, but you can get a hold of us through Instagram and Twitter, at Retro Wildlands. I'm going to try to post some content about the upcoming podcast as well and give you a little glimpse behind the scenes of what's happening here in the Wildlands. Maybe a dog picture or two, so prepare yourself for that. I also mentioned before that we are on YouTube. The channel is launched, and you can find us at Nomads Retro Wildlands. Although, as I'm recording this, I don't have my first video live yet. It is uploaded. I am making some tweaks to it. I'm still trying to learn how to best utilize YouTube. But on YouTube, I'm going to have more in-depth reviews of retro games, more documentary-ish styles, so it's not going to be as freeform as the podcast. But I'd be curious uh, if you like that kind of stuff, so please head on over to YouTube and give that a watch. Hopefully that first video will be up in the next day or two, meaning by the time you're listening to this, it'll be up. So, yeah, that makes sense. And then I'm also going to be on Twitch. You can find me on Twitch at Nomads Retro Wildlands. The Twitch site is live, but the profile is stark empty. Uh, Of all the things that I'm setting up, this one's probably last on my priority list. I do want to dabble in live streaming. I I just got myself a webcam. It was a used webcam I found online. The package was beat to shit, but the camera looks like it works, so that's cool. (laughs) So that's coming soon. Uh, Date is to be determined. I don't think I'm going to have a streaming schedule. Right now, when I record my podcast, it's mostly before I go to work, and I work a ton, and then fitting this all into family life is probably going to be a bit difficult, but as we get going, I'll find my stride, and and you'll probably find me on Twitch here and there, so uh, there's that. So yeah, check us out on social media. If you follow me, I'll follow you back, and we can be pals. I'll like your dog pictures and pictures of your food. Uh, I, I assume that's what the kids do. At least that's what my kids do. That's what they do on their accounts. They like everyone's pet pictures, so... Yeah, we'll do that. So, yeah, check us out. And as far as the podcast itself goes, uh, this podcast is being hosted through Podbean. That was not an endorsement. I just want to let you know where you can find us. So you can go to Podbean's website directly. But I'm slowly getting us out there in the podcasting stratosphere, as it were. So you can find us on Spotify, TuneIn, Listen Notes, Stitcher, Podcaster, and Podcast Addict is where this podcast is live as of me recording this intro. I'm still waiting on approvals through Apple. They apparently take four weeks, because Apple, I guess. Same with Pandora, four to six weeks to vet the show. And then I submitted the show through Google Podcasts. I don't know how long that's going to take, but uh, hopefully you'll find the show on those three mediums as well. And then whatever other ones I can find too. So again, still kind of new, throwing myself out there, see where we can uh, see where we can stick. So I think that about covers that. If you want to listen to the show, you can find us on those platforms. If you want to support the show, follow us on your platform of choice and and leave a good review. I'm assuming that's going to do something. So if you want to leave a good review, I, I definitely encourage it. And if you want to reach out to me, either through my Twitter or Instagram would probably be the best way to get a hold of me. 
So now that episode one is in the wild, I'll be posting about future upcoming episodes on social media, like I said. So if you want to leave a comment about the game that I'm going to be covering or you just want to chit chat, definitely feel free to reach out. I may even read your comment on the show, too. So if that's something that interests you, definitely leave a comment. All right, I think that's about it. So let's let's get into the Resident Evil talk. I'm really excited to talk to you about this game. Again, it's one of my favorites of all time. I'd like to think a lot of you listening to this show either know what it is or at the very least have played it back in the day too. So I'm really excited to let you know what my thoughts are on this game. So all right, let's get into it. very first episode of the Retro Wildlands, I really wanted to talk about a video game that is one that really helped define me as not just a gamer, but a person in general. One that really had a lot of memories that came with it, and the very first video game that came to my mind was the original Resident Evil, released for the Sony PlayStation back in 1996. I think I was about 12 or 13 years old when this game first released, and it's a game that spawned many, as we know, many iterations in this big franchise that Resident Evil has become today. It's it spawned countless games, movie adaptations, TV series. There's actually a TV series on the horizon from Netflix, too. There's, there's a lot that Resident Evil has become since 1996. But it all started with this one game. And this one game was probably one of the couple on the original PlayStation that really really started to define me as a gamer. And I'm going to talk about it. (laughs) So how did this game come into my life when I was only 12, 13 years old? Well, I had a pretty kick-ass stepdad that at first would not let me play this game when he brought it home. But After a while, I started to be able to play it. I played it with him. Then I got pretty darn good at it, and then I just played it over and over again until I committed that game almost to memory. And I replayed this game about two, three weeks before I'm recording this to to just go through it again, and it was just like riding a bicycle. I, I knew the layout of that mansion. I knew where most of the items were but it still kept that original charm for me, that cheesy, campy charm that by today's standards is a little eye-rolly, but back then, in the late 90s, there was no other game quite like this on the market, and there was no other game that stuck with me over the years like the original Resident Evil did. So, before we get into the meat of the game itself, I did want to sh- expand a little bit on the story of my stepdad bringing this game home. It's probably one of my favorite video game memories as I've grown up. But for those of you that have been alive through the early 90s and the late 80s, the internet was not always a thing. I know, it's shocking. But <laughs> the way we used to find out about video games was magazines going into certain stores if they happen to be in the know, or, or the big one, especially for me, was word of mouth. And I learned a lot about different games that were coming out or being played 
from my friends, you know, the, the typical playground talk at recess, right? But my stepdad, he learned about Resident Evil, if I recall correctly, from a co-worker, the, someone that he used to work with. And all they knew about this game that they told my stepdad was that it was dark, it was bloody, it was scary, and it was rated M for Mature. So, of course, for someone like him, that really tickled his fancy. So I, I can't remember if he borrowed the game or went out straight away and bought it. But he came home one day after work, and he had that beautiful jewel case in his hand. And, and, and if you guys even remember what this thing looked like, because it's like etched in my memory for all time now, it's that logo of, of a guy holding a gun with just this absolute fear-stricken look on his face, the big letters up above, and, and the shadow of the spiders in the back that you really had to look at. It was just glorious to me. But he grabs me, and he sits me down, and he shows me the game, uh, the game case. And he goes, Boy, I need you to understand something right now. This game is bloody, it's scary, and you will not be around while I'm playing it. And that was the end of that discussion. So for the first couple months of, of that game being in our house, I was not allowed to look at it. I wasn't allowed to listen to it. I wasn't even allowed to think about it. <laughs> but of course, as, as I alluded to, that did not last for long. In the house that I used to live in, we had a big, pretty expansive downstairs living room area. And my bedroom was off of that living room. Um, and my stepdad, he, he liked the finer things, especially when it came to sound systems, and we had a nice Bose surround sound system. So anytime he sat down, usually after work, he would pop that disc into the PlayStation, and as soon as he hit that power button, I'm sure a bunch of you are already recognizing it in your head right now, just that boot logo for the original PlayStation. And if I was in my bedroom or any, really anywhere near, in the house, I would hear it and the hairs on the back of my neck would stand up. Oh, he's playing it. But <laughs> the rules had to be, I had to be upstairs with mom, or I had to go right downstairs, zip past him, go into my bedroom, and shut the door. Yeah, that didn't last long. So I would find ways to wait until he was engaged in that game. I would, I would open my door just a crack, which had a perfect view of the TV, so there were times where I would just sit there and watch him play, but I needed to be closer. So there were times where I would slip out. I would open the door just as far as it would go. I would get on my stomach, army crawl, just past the door, shut it ever so softly behind me, and then army crawl behind the couch. Because our couch was sit up like right in the middle of the room, so I could just sit right behind it. So I would sit behind the couch peer my head around just a little bit, anything to be closer to this game. And, and I still remember, he must have replayed it at some point, but I remember the first time I put my head around the couch. It was that iconic scene in the very beginning of the game. He was playing as Jill Valentine, uh, the female protagonist of the game, and, and she and her colleague Barry, Barry Burton, were in the dining room of, of the mansion, which is one of the very first rooms that you go in when you start the game. And this is right after you hear a gunshot, and you think that there is a, another person in the mansion, so you go to investigate. And 
oh, I, I, ho- I hope those of you that have played this game are just visualizing this in your head. So Barry goes by the uh, fireplace at the very end of the dining room, and he shouts, What? What is this? And Jill comes running up. What is it? And Barry looks down to see a pile of blood, or a pile of blood? A puddle of blood. Yeah, let's go with a puddle. <laughs> so, and they're both looking at each other, trying to figure out what's going on here. So you resume control of Jill, and really all you can do is go into the next room. So you open the door, and... Uh, do you all remember those door animations that cleverly uh, hid the loading time anytime you had to go to a new room? All it was was the screen would go black, you'd come up to a door... The doorknob would turn, and the door would creak open, and you would go through it and into the next room. Never got old. I loved going into new rooms and opening up different doors, but anyway, I'm getting off pace here. So you, you go into the next room, which is a long hallway, and you walk down the hallway, you, you, you come towards yourself on the screen, and then you, you take a right, and... You can't see what's around the corner because the game has what they call fixed camera angles and pre-rendered backgrounds. Like, as you move, the game's background doesn't move with you. It's all static. So you can't see what's around a corner until you, you, you take your character and you physically go around the corner. But when you go around this one corner, the screen goes black for just a, just a hiccup, and then you see it. The very first zombie just chowing down on something. The music gets real low and real tense, and then you hear the snap of bone. And at that moment, the zombie realizes that you're standing behind it. So what does it do? It starts to sit up, it turns around, and it's looking at you with its one dead eye. And then immediately the game is back on, and this zombie's rising up from the corpse it's eating, and your character's just standing there. And I remember my stepdad just kind of standing there for a half a second going, well, shit, what do I do now? Pulls his character's gun, shoots this thing dead, runs back out to the dining room, and Jill runs back to Barry, and the door opens, and the zombie that you just thought you killed came out at the two of them. So Barry pulls out his big Colt Python and just blows this thing's head off. Falls to the ground, pool of blood. And all I remember sitting behind this couch watching this is how much my face hurt from smiling so much. Is that bad? That scene made me so happy. I'm, I'm going to go with no, but <laughs> it, it was just a sight to behold that all I could think of as, as I watched the rest of this scene play out is what the hell is going on in this game? It was a genuine mystery. So... I'm going to back up just a little bit. I'm going I'm to take that lovely story of my childhood and put that aside for a second. And I think this is a good time to kind of explain the story of Resident Evil, what this game is, and, and kind of go from there. What I'm going to try to do, because Resident Evil is everywhere, I have to assume that even if you've never played this game, you have at least a, a general idea of what this game series is about. But... I will let you know if there's going to be any game-breaking spoilers in this game uh, well before I actually start talking about them, because I will say, as campy as this game's story can be at times, I really did enjoy unraveling the mystery a little bit 
and and finally coming to that epic conclusion. So if you've never played this game before for some reason, I implore you, find a way. Um, there's physical copies of the game out there in the wild still, although prices for this thing, I'm sure, are probably astronomical. And there are other ways to play games as well. I'm sure you're all a very resourceful bunch of people, so I'll just leave it at that. But but I implore you to play this game if you've never played it before, or, or even go back and play it again. It I don't know if it holds up as well as it used to back in the day, but when I replayed it a couple weeks ago, it was still very playable, at least to me. But anyway, getting off track. That's... Uh, I gotta fix that. Okay. So, let's talk about the story. When you boot this game up, you're met with just a character walking down a long hallway. He turns around, gives a good comedic, horrific scream, and a splotch of blood hits the screen. Title calling. Resident Evil. Mm, that sounded good. And that's it. That's all you got to go with. You hit the start button, you start a new game, and the very first thing that you're met with is a character select screen. You get a choice between two characters. Chris Redfield and Jill Valentine. You don't know the difference between these two characters. You don't know who's going to operate differently. All you know is you're going to pick him or her. So I remember that uh, my stepdad played the game through first as Jill because he did hear through his coworker that she was the easier of the two characters to play. So we're going we're gonna to play as Jill here for a second while I'm explaining some of the story. So when the game opens... It's full motion video, actual recorded actors that are playing out a part in the, in the very beginning. It's, it's really awesome. They were able to put this on the PlayStation, fully voice acted, black and white, um, which is not the original intent, side note, but still, it looked really awesome. So you are part of the police department's kind of a SWAT team of sorts. They call themselves STARS, Special Tactics and Rescue Service or squad, depending on what you want that last S to stand for. And there's been some grisly murders in the mountain region outside of Raccoon City, the local city in the area of the game that you're playing, right? So you send in Bravo Team, one of the teams off of stars, to go investigate the mountains. But Bravo Team is missing. They have not reported back in for, I don't know, however many days it was in-game but no one's heard from them since they left in their helicopter. So you take control of your, your character, either Chris or Jill, and you are part of the Alpha Team, and you need to figure out what happened to Bravo Team. Simple as that. It's probably one of the more simplest game premises ever. So in the opening, you find the wreckage of Bravo Team's helicopter, and there's nobody in it. But strangely, all of their equipment is still there. So everyone's walking around the, the crash site trying to figure out what's going on, and that's when everyone finds out that they're not alone in the forest. And there are creatures roaming around that immediately start attacking the group. One thing leads to another, they're screaming, there's, there's very bad voice acting, and everyone runs through the forest and come across a mansion, seemingly out of nowhere, in the middle of these woods. So what do you do when you're being chased down by ravenous creatures? Well, shit, you're going to run for that house. <laughs> so you get into the house, and that's where the game truly begins. If you're playing as Jill, it's you, Jill, Barry Burton, and Captain Albert Wesker are the three that make it into the foyer. Chris Redfield, the other playable character that you could play, is missing. You have no idea where he is. You hear a gunshot. And that's when you start to go investigate the dining room, which I described earlier. 
And then at that point, you see a zombie, you figure out shit's kind of screwed up here, and then the game just gives you control. You go back into the main hallway, and Wesker is missing. Wesker is gone, and you don't know where he is. After a little bit of back and forth between uh, Jill and Barry, they decide, well, in classic uh, scary movie fashion, let's split up. And that's that. <laughs> Once you split up, you control Jill, and it's up to you to start exploring the mansion. So, this is where I'm going to start a quick spoiler and kind of wrap the story up a little bit before I start talking about the gameplay. So, I'm going to give myself one minute. From the moment I say go, if you don't want to have the end of the game spoiled for you, fast forward just a minute and go. So as you're roaming around the mansion and you're finding clues, you're, you start to realize that these zombies and these creatures you're finding are actually byproducts of a secret experiment that went awry in a basement lab that's underneath the mansion. And this is where all these creatures are coming from. They're born from a virus called the T-virus that reanimates dead bodies, and that's why all these dead people and creatures are walking around. But even worse than that, you find out that Captain Wesker actually works for a pharmaceutical company called Umbrella, who is actually masterminding the production of this virus, and he's one of the reasons this virus exists in the first place. He's part of the reason why it accidentally escaped, and you find all of this through different notes and files up until the end of the game, and it all kind of comes to a conclusion of, well, Wesker betrayed us all, Umbrella's making a virus, and we gotta get the hell out of here. Alright, that was my minute. I think I did pretty good with kind of encapsulating what that was, but anyway. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the gameplay of the game itself. So now that you're on your own, and the game just... The game gives you nothing to work with, which is actually pretty awesome, I think. You're standing in the middle of this... in the middle of the main hall. All you have, if you're playing as Jill, is a gun and a knife. The gun has 15 rounds, if you haven't shot those 15 at the first zombie that you saw, and that's it. The goal, at least in the beginning, is to try to figure out where Captain Wesker went, and what the hell is going on in the house. You're free to explore the mansion, kinda as you please, but one of the things that makes this game as fun as it is, is there's a lot of locked doors in that mansion. And to be able to progress, you have to find different key items or different, well, literally keys to open up those doors and keep progressing deeper and deeper into the house. When you're playing the game, you're going to want to explore every nook and cranny of every room that you come across to find any clue, any scrap of intel, any item, anything that you can use to just progress in the story, but ultimately stay alive. As you move from room to room, you start to realize that that one zombie you came across is certainly not the only one, and there's more walking corpses shambling around the rest of the house. And that's one of the things that, I mean, obviously, it really added so much tension to this game for me, is those fixed camera angles that I mentioned before, because they're locked into place, you can't get a full read of whatever room that you're in. So if you enter a room and there's an enemy in there, you might not be able to see it, but the cool thing is, is sometimes you can hear them. And what the zombies would do at times is they'd, they'd shuffle around and you'd hear their big squishy dead feet just hitting the ground as they walk around. But sometimes they would stop and they would sniff the air. 
and then walk around again. <laughs> God, those sounds sound awful. But but you know what I mean. Those that have played the game know the sound. But but that's what really added to that tension. And then you round a corner, and holy shit, there he is, and the zombie is walking at you. You raise your gun, you shoot, you try to kill it, you don't, and you run away. Ugh. It's so good. Ugh. But so you've got your enemies hiding off screen. You've got limited resources and ammunition. So when you're walking around the mansion, too, you've also got to got to. You also have to. Does that sound better? Sure. You also have to manage your inventory. So one of the main differences between Jill and Chris is Jill can carry eight items in her inventory. So, for example, uh, a weapon will constitute one space in her eight-block grid that she has of inventory space. Uh, So your gun will take up one space, your ammunition will take up another space, your healing item will take up another space, and and you start to gather a lot of stuff, a lot of things that you come across uh, in, in the mansion. Chris, on the other hand, only has six slots, so he can only carry six items in his inventory, which obviously would increase the difficulty a little bit because you can't carry as much. So as you're walking around, you have to manage that inventory, and, and those of you that have played this game before know where I'm going. You have these item boxes that you can dump excess inventory into, and there's a couple different item boxes scattered throughout the game. I, th- I think... There's two in the actual mansion itself and a couple other littered in other areas of the game that you get to explore later. The nice thing about these item boxes is through some some voodoo, sorcery, wizard magic, if you put one item in an item box, it will be accessible in any of the other item boxes that you find throughout the game. It's it's a little wonky, but it it works really, really well, and it's it's really helpful for item management. So say you come across a bunch of healing items that you don't need right now and you don't want to lug them around with you, just dump them in your item box and they'll be there if you need them. Now, the big part about this is enemies are everywhere. The zombies are everywhere. There's zombie dogs. Oh, zombie dogs are great. Um, And other enemies that are running around too. So, and, And these item boxes are usually put very far apart from each other. Not unrealistically far apart or, or, or too much of a pain to backtrack to, but just far enough apart where you usually have to travel through some high-populated areas to go back and get your items. So unless you've killed those enemies beforehand, you're going to have to dodge and juke and what have you uh, and get past those enemies before you can get back and get something that you might need for a puzzle that you came across or a bigger enemy that you know is coming up or whatever the case may be. So I did like the item boxes. That, that was kind of a cool touch. The enemies themselves, you've definitely got to be prepared for them because they are tough. Zombies, now, while you would think you would just shoot them in the head, no, this is a PlayStation-era survival horror game. You're going to shoot them a ton of times in the chest before they go down. (laughs) So, depending on the zombie, you could probably expend anywhere from... I I, I think I've killed one in as few as three bullets, or as as much as, jeez, ten bullets before the zombie will actually expire. So you've got to be prepared, and you've got to decide if the zombie that you come across is worth expending ammo. Typically, if you're in a narrow hallway and you don't have a lot of room to move around them, you're going to want to put them down, especially if it's an area that you're going to see yourself traveling back and forth through with some regularity. Now, if you can learn their mannerisms, which are very simple in that they will just come straight at you when they see you, 
if they're in a bigger, wider open area, you can typically leave them alive and just run around them and, and save your ammo. The problem there is, is if you get yourself into a little bit of a complacent spot like I have at times, sometimes you forget they're there and they can still be a pain in your ass. <laughs> so, but either way, that's, that's part of that give and take when it comes to how you use your resources and your ammunition. There's other enemies in the houses, houses. There's other enemies in the house as well that I started to allude to. The zombies, of course. There's zombie dogs. You also come across zombified crows because regular crows aren't scary enough. And then there's an even more menacing enemy that comes later in the game that I'll touch on a little bit later. But there is a pretty decent amount of enemy variety. So you have to, you have to adapt yourself to what kind of situation you're in and use different weapons accordingly. So let's talk about the weapons really quick. There's not, it's not a ton of variety, but each weapon has its use. First off, there's the survival knife. It's the first thing that Chris and Jill start with, and you may as well just throw that piece of shit into the item box. Or at least that's what I did when I played the game when I was younger. I actually got kind of good with using it a little bit the last couple weeks ago when I replayed this game. It's kind of useless because it requires you to have to swipe at your enemy at close range. If you don't time your slice right or the zombie just keeps walking through it, they're just going to grab you and chomp on your neck anyway. I used to carry it around if I had the extra space for that moment when I would shoot a zombie, he'd fall to the ground, but I know he wasn't dead, and I'd whip out the knife, and I'd stab him in the back and try to save a bullet or two. I was that stingy with my ammunition, but, but either way, you could probably chuck that knife in the box. You have a basic handgun, the Beretta M92F, I think is what the actual in-game gun is modeled after. Uh, 15 shots, your basic zombie killing machine. Problem is, like I said, it could be anywhere between 3 and 10 actual bullets to put a zombie down. Semi-useful against those zombie dogs. Uh, some of the bigger enemies, though, you probably don't want to waste your bullets on, but it's, it's your bread and butter weapon. It's the one that you're going to carry with you most of the game. At least I did. You come across a shotgun. So it holds seven shots, and the nice thing about this is, now, the game doesn't tell you this. I actually had to figure this out on accident. Well, rather, my stepdad figured this out on accident. If you let a zombie get close enough to you, and you fire either right into their chest or you angle the gun upwards, one shot will instantly decapitate a zombie, and they're down for the count. It's glorious. And I remember when my stepdad figured that out on accident, he fired, trying to shoot this thing's head off, and it exploded, and this thing went down. And I remember his wide-eyed look, just stared at the screen for a second, because not only was that gory as hell, but now he realized that he's got a real good tool here that's going to save him a lot of bullets and make his life a hell of a lot easier. So that shotgun, man, that's one that I always kept around with me and used to dispatch most zombies when I found them. But granted, there's not a lot of shotgun ammo to be found in the game, so you still had to be kind of stingy with it. They had a grenade launcher, which they called a bazooka for some stupid reason, but a grenade launcher. Now, the grenade launcher was only specific to Jill. It was only available to her when you played as her, and it was not available to Chris. So that's another reason why Jill's playthrough is a little easier. But the grenade launcher was cool in that it had three different types of ammo that you could use. Explosive ammunition, fire rounds, and acid rounds. Acid rounds were more effective against certain other enemies, the flame rounds against uh, plant-based enemies, um, and then your explosive rounds, pretty much useful against zombies and other living dead things. Sure, we'll go with that. 
ammunition for that, it was pretty rare as well, but if you stockpiled it near the end of the game, you could just whip out that bazooka and just start blowing shit up and not have to worry about too much. It was it was kind of nice. <laughs> Um, what else was there? They, oh, that weapon that Barry had that, that he used to shoot off the head of that very first zombie that I mentioned way back when, that's available too. Although it's an optional weapon that you gotta do a little bit of, uh, um, gotta jump over some fences for, but you can get it. It's, uh, I always called it the Magnum, but it's called the Colt Python in-game. Six shots, it will instantly decapitate any zombie you shoot, and it will do massive damage to anything else that you're shooting at. Ammunition for that is extremely rare as well, so I would always save that until near the end of the game. Except for when I replayed it the last couple weeks, I just shot that thing around willy-nilly and had a really good time with it. I regretted it a little bit, but it was fun to use. <laughs> so, I actually think that's all of the weapons that you have access. No, I take that back. Chris does have access to a weapon that Jill does not ac- have access to, and that's a flamethrower. Now, granted, he can only use that flamethrower in one specific area of the game against one specific enemy type. It is kind of cool for what it is, although I wish you could take that thing out and about and use it in other places, but it is available for Chris to use. Pretty sure that's it. I'm probably missing something, so you're probably screaming at your car radio right now, but I'm just going off memory, so we're going we're gonna to run with that. Um, well, I, I guess I could mention the rocket launcher. So there is, you do have access to a rocket launcher at the very end of the game. It has four rockets that will kill anything instantly. And if you're good at the game, now I should have looked this up ahead of time, but of course I didn't. But if you're really good at the game, and I believe if you beat the game with your best ending and within three hours or two and a half hours, one of the two, you can replay the game and have access to this rocket launcher with infinite ammo in the very first item box you come across. And then you get to replay the game without a care in the world and just blowing the ever-living hell out of everything you come across. That was fun. (laughs) So that's all for the weapons. What else do we want to talk about here? Oh, so when talking about these fixed camera angles, I wanted to touch on the controls a little bit. So the way you move your character around is very archaic. Archaic? I think we're going to go with archaic. (laughs) If, If you've played this game or any game like it, you're familiar with this control scheme. They call it tank controls because your character is kind of moving around like an old school tank. So in most games, if if you can imagine a directional button in your head, if you plus, if plus, if you press left on your directional button, your character will move left. If you press right, they'll move right. But in Resident Evil and, and a lot of other survival horror titles of the genre and, 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 and the era, if you press left on the directional pad, you're only going to pivot your character's body in that direction, like they're on a rotating platform. When you press forward, or I'm sorry, if you press up on the directional pad, your character will move forward in relation to where they're staring on the screen. So if, you're, if you press up to go forward, you have to hold the left directional button to pivot their body to the left. If you want to move them backward, you have to press down on the directional pad to move them backward. It's very jarring at first when you try to get used to it, but I'm a huge advocate for tank controls. I love tank controls. They're, to me, they're really easy to use, especially once you get used to them. I felt like my character was decently maneuverable, and later iterations of Resident Evil introduced a 180-degree quick turn. So you'd just press a button or a combination thereof, and then your character would just turn around on their heel 180 degrees. 
with the inclusion of that. Ah, I love tank controls. It's, they just feel perfect. It's just, I don't know, I, maybe this isn't the right analogy, but it just feels like your wedding dress. When you find that one hanging up there at Dillard's or wherever the hell you get your wedding dress, you just know it. And then you slip it on and you just feel that, that rush of, oh, it's the one. Yeah, that's kind of tank controls for me. <laughs> so it works out well. So, like I said, they're, they're, they're easy to use, but they're, well, actually, the other way around. They're hard to use initially, but easy to master, in my opinion. But it kind of adds to that experience. Now, I've heard conflicting things on the interwebs that the developers of this game purposely use tank controls to add tension and fear to the game because your person's not quite maneuverable. And I came across an article once uh, uh, with Shinji Mikami, the director of this game, where he more or less said as much. But I've also heard other people say that, no, that wasn't the developer's intention. They took it from another game, um, which is escaping me right now. Alone in the Dark, maybe? Sure, we'll go with that. And, and, and that game used similar, a similar control scheme with similar fixed cameras, and it just kind of made sense. But whatever. I don't, I'm not really into getting into the history or whatever, but I am getting off on a tangent, so I apologize. So the last part of the actual gameplay that I want to talk about is the puzzles. There are some pretty basic puzzles throughout the game. So going back to the beginning, you've got to figure out how to find Wesker. You've got to figure out how to get deeper into the house. And a lot of the doors are locked. But it's not just as easy as finding a key lying around. I mean, sometimes, yeah. But other times, you've got to circumvent some puzzles to dive deeper into some rooms to be able to get the items you need to be able to get the keys you need to be able to progress into the mansion and progress the story. It sounds very dull, very arduous, but I can promise you it is not. Because the nice thing about these puzzles is they're very, very easy, but they still kind of give you that sense of accomplishment when you do actually finish them. So here, here's an example, probably one of the more iconic puzzles, in my opinion. Let's, uh take a journey back to that dining room in the very beginning of the game. Right across from, well not across, but above. Right above the fireplace. God, I I hope you guys like this show. I feel like I'm just stumbling across myself here, but ah, who cares? I'm having fun. (laughs) All right, back to the dining room. So above the fireplace, there's an emblem that you can actually remove from its hollow and take with you. And if you examine it, it's made of wood. I had no idea what the hell to do with this thing the first time I found it. I I stuck it in an item box and just went about my merry way. But you will eventually come across another room, a bar, I think it was, that this emblem's going to come into play. If you're playing as Jill, you come across this bar, and in this bar is a big old black grand piano. If you explore a little deeper into that room and move a shelf, you'll come across some music notes. So you got some music notes in your hand and you're staring at a grand piano. What do you do? Well, let's try to play the piano. So if you're playing as Jill, she'll be able to play the music flawlessly because Jill is just primo goodness. She knows so much stuff and apparently uh, knowing how to play piano is one of the things that she just does exceptionally well. So. So she plays the piano and then a false wall starts to rise behind you or off to your left and gives you access to a hidden area. So you walk down this hallway, and what do you see? You see a statue with another emblem in it, and it's gold. Ooh, shiny. So, of course, you go to take it. But the moment you take it, the wall shuts, and it locks you in, and you're stuck. Unless you put that gold emblem back, and then the wall opens up. So immediately, for those of you that have never done this puzzle before, your mind should immediately be going to the other emblem that I shoved in the item box, like, oh, oh, oh. 
take the wooden one and stick it in there, and then take your golden one and go into the dining room. That's exactly it. <laughs> that is probably one of the more complicated puzzles in this game. And when you do that, you go into the dining room, you stuff your gold emblem in, into the hollow. The, the dining room clock, which has been ticking incessantly all game, by the way, finally chimes, goes dead, and then it moves away to reveal a hollow behind it where a key is. And now you can get access to another room in the mansion. It's simple but it works, and you always feel like you're progressing. Now, the problem with this kind of thing, with the puzzles and, and finding emblems and different uh, reliefs or things that you need to stick in the walls or whatever, is you're, you're probably going to find a lot of these puzzle pieces before you can actually do anything with them, or, or, or kind of the, the opposite, too. One part of the game is you, you find a back door that gets you out of the mansion and into a garden area, but it's locked behind a puzzle uh, call it a puzzle panel, and there's four depressions in this panel for four different hexagonal-shaped emblems. So you've got to find all four of these before you can unlock the door. So without the game really telling you this out loud, now you have your next mission objective. You've got to find these four emblems. So you're going to go around the house trying to find all these emblems, but you can't get behind certain doors because you need keys, so you find these... You solve these lower-level puzzles, if you will, to find these keys. It's just... It's this constant loop of backtracking and going back to places that you visited before, and it does get a little arduous after a while. I do like that word. Did I use that right? Arduous. Anyway, um, it, it does get a little painstaking after a while, especially if, if you're going back through areas that you've left monsters alive. You've got to dodge around them, but uh, the other part of it, too, is I... I made it a point to kill most everything in my first playthrough because I, I, I was lucky enough to find enough ammunition where I felt like I had just enough to kill whatever was in front of me. So I actually cleared out the mansion the, in the first part of the game pretty thoroughly. So finally, when I had a chance to settle down and not have to worry about enemies trying to claw at my neck, I, I could take the time and actually go through room to room and solve the different puzzles and gather up all the emblems and it was boring, not gonna lie, just because there was nothing to run around or no other enemies to kind of come at me or any tension or anything like that. But once you get into those new areas, though, and the game opens back up and there's fresh enemies and new things to explore, it reinvigorates you pretty quick. So, uh, man, we haven't really even touched on any of the other areas of the game yet either. Where are we at here? 40 minutes? Yeah, we can, we can keep going, I think. Hey, if you're still listening to this, I really do thank you. I really feel like I'm rambling a lot, but this game is just, ah, it's so good. But let me wet the, wet the whistle real quick here. Ah, hopefully that didn't sound as awful as I thought it sounded. All right, anyway, to kind of put a pin in the gameplay, it's really kind of more of the same as you go throughout. Um, you do eventually get out of the mansion, like I said, into a garden area, and then you go into a guardhouse farther behind the garden, um, where, assumedly, the people taking care of the mansion lived. There's, there's dormitory areas, bedrooms, that kind of thing, and more creatures and monsters. Uh, a gigantic plant that you have to find a way to kill, which I'm not going to get into the details of that. It's a little convoluted. You actually have to mix uh, a, I'll call it a potion to kill the roots that have descended into the basement of this particular facility and then go back upstairs and kill it with good old-fashioned gunfire. 
But no, the gameplay is pretty much the same throughout. Once you get near the end of the game and you start to get kind of towards the end of the mystery, you're finding files all around the mansion. You're finding files all around the guardhouse. You're slowly piecing together what happened here and, and what caused everything to go awry. And when you finally finish the game or get right towards that penultimate, ooh, it's another big word, when you finally get towards that penultimate battle and get to put a pin in everything, by then you've kind of figured out what's what's happening here. But what I think really sticks out for me too, I'm, I'm going to get off on this tangent, is those files. I want to talk about those files real quick. Because you don't have a lot of character interaction with your fellow STARS members as you go throughout the story. I mean, you, you do find people, you come across Barry again. If you're playing as Chris, you'll actually come across Rebecca Chambers who is a member of Bravo Team. She actually found her way into the house, has been held up, so you get to interact with her if you're playing as Chris. But either way, your your character interactions are very brief, and they don't really expand on the story too too much in terms of, of, of the plot until you get to the very end. But what really puts the mystery together are these files that you find lying around the house. And this was probably one of my favorite parts of this game, is finding these files. A lot of them were your your typical like journal entries, like someone sitting down at their desk and writing about their day, and then slowly shit just starts to hit the fan, and they talk about how things are happening around them and all that, and you kind of put some of the puzzle pieces together. But one of my, not even one of, my absolute favorite file to find is the Keeper's Diary. And I, I hope somebody who's listening to this goes, ooh, the Keeper's Diary, and they just get hit with a wave of nostalgia. Because this is by far one of the deepest files that you find, and it really makes an impression on you, especially if you're really deep into this game and trying to figure out what's going on here. So I'm not going to get into the file itself deep per se, but really what it is, is it, it chronicles the infection of a keeper of the house. And when I say infection, him turning into a zombie. He starts off his diary just normal, he's tending to the dogs, he's interacting with his co-workers, but all of a sudden there's an accident, and he has to wear he has to wear a spacesuit, is what he calls it in his diary. The the workers in the mansion say that he's gotta wear this spacesuit for a little while and stay on the grounds. Talks about how the mansion is locked down. Talks about how uh, slowly this person starts to feel different. His body's getting itchy, and he doesn't have to wear the spacesuit anymore. And then finally, his mind starts to go. You can tell by the way he writes that he's not entirely there. His sentences are short. Uh, they're very quick and to the point. And then finally, someone comes to his dorm. I think his name was Scott. Yeah, Scott comes to his dorm. And, he, and this guy doesn't like Scott. He's got a funny face. So he kills Scott. And Scott is tasty. And then the end of the diary ends with the words, For Itchy Tasty. <laughs> I'm gonna let that settle in. Um, so I know I said no spoilers in the very beginning, but I might have spoiled a little bit of there, and I really apologize. But I don't know how else to describe that particular file, and and that really really stuck with me all throughout this game. Is that not only am I facing zombies throughout this game, but they were once human too, and and we get a glimpse into the mind of somebody that eventually succumbs to this sickness. And then right away, as soon as you get done finishing reading this file, right behind your character, a big walk-in closet just flies open. Intense music starts and a zombie starts to wander towards you real close to you. Like like you have to start shooting right now or this thing's going to grab you. Oh, and 
you put two and two together and you kind of surmise that that zombie that you just dispatched was the guy that just wrote the keeper's diary oh, I, I need some ominous music i can put in right here or something <laughs> but that's going to tie up the gameplay portion of what i wanted to talk about those those files on top of the files too the music is just absolute gold it gets a little mind-numbing after a while because you get to start hearing the same stuff over and over again, but with the with the files you find and the interactions you have with some of the characters and you start to unravel this mystery, the music just puts that final stamp of goodness on this game. It sets the mood, it's very tense, and even in areas that you finished going through and killed zombies or dogs or whatever, that music always made me feel like you never know if they're going to come back. <laughs> Oh, that's that's something else I wanted to share too real quick. Another another fun memory with my stepdad. So, when you kill enemies in this game, they aren't truly dead until you see a pool of blood come out from underneath the body, right? And I know <laughs> I remember that we 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 didn't know that initially. So we would shoot a zombie and it would fall, and we figure that's the end of it. It's not getting up. But sometimes, if you walk over a zombie and they're not completely dead, they'll actually latch onto your leg and start chewing at you. And then Jill or, or Chris, they'll have to get them off. Uh, Chris stomps on their head and Jill kicks it off like, like, like a soccer ball. <laughs> that's, that's pretty fun, too. But, but I remember that. I remember walking by the zombie, and it, it actually took us a little while to figure out, oh, my God, the blood that's coming out, that means they're dead. I mean, it sounds... Sounds kind of simple now, but that added a lot of tension because we didn't really know if those enemies were going to be dead or not. And then to really, (laughs) and here's the kicker, when we would leave the room after a zombie was dead dead and then come back through it, the body was gone. And granted, the reason the body was gone, I'm sure the game is probably clearing up memory and it doesn't want to keep track of the dead body or whatever, but that scared the shit out of the both of us. Because we didn't know if that zombie was up walking around. Because remember, in the very beginning of the game, that very first zombie, my stepdad decided to shoot that first zombie and kill it. And what did it do? It came walking out of that door and coming right at Barry and Jill. So because of that, we were very convinced that zombies could reanimate themselves and walk around. (laughs) So good. Um, But that wasn't the case. You kill a zombie, he's dead forever. Although... Um, speaking of the tension and the music and all of that, one of the last things I want to touch on is when you come back from the guardhouse, you do everything that you're supposed to do there. You, you, you find another key that, that gets you into more locked rooms in the mansion. You go back to the mansion and then there's a new enemy that takes the place of the zombies. And those that have played the game, they know what it is. That big, giant, green monster, they call it the Hunter. And I remember when you come back in from the garden, you open the big steel door or whatever, and you're back into that green hallway or whatever, and you're walking through, da-da-da-da-da, got my new mansion key, gonna open some doors. And then the game immediately cuts to a a CGI cutscene in the first person, something just running right, running right at you, following the same path through the garden that you just took, up the ladder, through the door, holy shit, it's opening doors. And then it gets to that door that you just went through and you see the hand grab it and start to pull it open and then it snaps back to the gameplay. Door opens and shuts and then you see this thing walking at you with these big thudding feet print, feet print, feet foot, 
it's coming at you and it's making noise <laughs> and and you see this thing snarling face and its teeth and it's got these big ass claws and what does it do it lunges right at you and i don't know about you guys and gals if you've played this game before i was stunned i i didn't even i didn't even draw my weapon this thing takes a swipe at your leg and what was kind of cool about it, too, is if you looked close enough, that white claw that it had actually turned red because it just took a big old chunk out of your leg and its blood's running down its claw. And so we try to take it down, right? We try to take this thing down and, and we run into another room. We can't kill it. The music at this point, it's still the same background music that it was when you were in the, in the mansion originally. But it's different. Like, I can't describe it really. Like, they add another violin to it or something a little bit more tension-inducing. So now the mansion feels fresh again. You just got done clearing it out. You solved all the puzzles. And now these hunters are walking around. The music's different. It feels feels even scarier than it did before. And I think that's probably one of my favorite parts of this game, how it could just turn everything on its head and now you have a fresh experience and now you got to figure out how to deal with these monsters, which do not go down easy. And if you're, if you think you're going to shoot these things with your handgun, you've got another thing coming. You've got to find a bigger weapon like your shotgun or your grenade launcher for these things. One more thing I want to talk about with these hunters too, that makes that makes this whole experience even scarier. I can't remember if it was my stepdad playing or if it was me playing, but we tried to go toe-to-toe with one of these things. I had my shotgun. I was playing as Jill, and I had my shotgun. It's what I brought with me back from the guardhouse. It's all I had before I got back to the next save box or, or, or the item box. And I shoot this thing, and it goes down. I'm like, hey, I got you, motherfucker. And I'm just I'm waiting for this thing to, to get up and come at me. And what happens? I'm out of bullets. I wasn't counting my shells. So Jill takes the gun, moves it to the side, starts adding shells. What does this monster do? It lets out this screech, takes a big swing, and chops off Jill's head. The screen starts to go white. Jill's just standing there. Blood's just gushing out. And then she slowly falls over. And then the words come up on screen, You died. Back to the title screen. That was it. And I remember looking at my stepdad, both of us, our mouths were just wide open. And we didn't say anything for probably a good minute. Because, well, not only did we just get insta-killed by this big-ass green creature, we had not saved our game in a while. (laughs) It was, uh, I think we walked away from the game for a couple days before we actually went back to it. But, But now knowing that this creature could just take you out in one hit, just added a whole nother level of terror to this game. Now, granted, I think specifically you have to be wounded a little bit before it'll do that attack, but doesn't matter. Just knowing this thing can lop your head off whenever, it, pretty much whenever it felt like it, no thank you. We tried to avoid those fights as much as possible, and it's probably good that we did. We saved a lot of ammunition that way, but oh, God, this game, I, I swear to God. <laughs> That did remind me of something else that I wanted to touch on too pretty quick. We're coming up on an hour. I hope I'm not boring you guys. But saving the game. Saving the game was pretty unique too. Um, For those of you that played it uh, and remember this, you couldn't just save your game whenever you wanted to. Part of the whole survival uh, horror aspect of it is you could only save your game at typewriters throughout the mansion and the guardhouse and all that. And to save your game you had to use an ink ribbon that you would put in the typewriter to give it ink to save your game on. 
and those ink ribbons were not common at all. I think I saved them up from one playthrough, and I think there was maybe like 16 I found altogether throughout the entirety of the game. So really, you could only save your game 16 times. So you had to plan out when you would save your game, when you would go explore a little deeper and, and, and run that risk or, or whatever, and it really added a, a lot of tension to it as well. Now, I, I know we're pampered nowadays with games. We can pretty much save whenever we want and all that, and it's, it's, it's definitely a lot more convenient, especially if you've got to walk away and you can't just walk away because you've got to go find an ink ribbon to save your game. I, I, I get it's easier nowadays, but man, there was just something about it, just knowing that you... You really had to be mindful with what you did and be careful with what you, where you went and how you went about things. You couldn't waste too much ammo because if you did, well, you don't want to go back and reload your save. You just made all that progress. Let's just keep pressing forward. So that was a good part of it. All right. I think I've got one more thing that I really want to talk about. Maybe two. I want to go back to campy parts about this game and kind of talk about those a little bit maybe inject some sound files into this playback, I don't know, but I want to talk about that voice acting. So those of you that have played the game before, and maybe those that don't and just kind of got this secondhand, the voice acting in this game is just, it's just awful, but it's the best voice acting ever. (laughs) What really puts this in perspective for me is when, when I was playing this game when I was younger, I can't remember a lot of games back in the day that had actual voice acting. So, so any voice acting in games was just unheard of, especially to my 12-year-old self. So when these characters would talk, I was, I was hung on every word. But now that I'm 37 years old and I listen to these people talk, it was just awful. <laughs> but, but I don't care. It was still so good. So, you were never really hung up on the words of everybody when they talked, but the voice acting just really stuck with me. And I mean this seriously, it really stuck with me even today. It it was awful, it was campy, it was B-movie style, but it was just charming in that Saturday morning cartoon kind of way. Like, I, I heard somebody use that terminology, so sorry if I stole that from you, but Saturday morning cartoon is, is the best way I can describe the voice acting in this game. It's just... When I go when I go back and listen to it now, it's just warm and inviting. It's like it's like it's like a friend you haven't seen in a long time and they're welcoming you into their home and they're like, "Hey man, I got a beer in the fridge and I just got the fire going." And it's just thanks, guy. <laughs> That's what the voice acting is to me. So, a lot of iconic lines came from this terrible voice acting. Barry was probably the best uh he had the best lines throughout the entire game. He coined the iconic Jill sandwich that we all know and love. Yeah, I'm a, I, I gotta do it. I'm gonna take a second right now and I'm gonna interject some of this awesome voice acting right here. Oh, Barry! That was too close. You were almost a Jill sandwich. <laughs> You're right. Jill, here's a lockpick. It might be handy if you, the master of unlocking, take it with you. Wait, what is that? What are they? Monsters? Rebecca! Is she still in the house? Rebecca! Oh, Jill, this house is dangerous. There are terrible demons. Ouch! I'm sorry for my lack of manners, but I'm not used to escorting men. Rebecca, we are in great danger. We must organize a search for the others and get the hell out of here. It's slightly broken. 
but it's still usable. I'll take it with me. What? What is this? What is it? 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 I have this. You guys are idiots. Isn't that stuff great? I mean, come on. <laughs> so, all right. I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to more or less end with that. Nope, I lied. One more thing. I mentioned earlier, too, um, when you get that infinite rocket launcher, you've got to get the best ending. One last thing I will end this conversation with is that what makes this game special, too, is there are multiple endings. And same as before, the game is not at all obvious on how to get these endings, but there are some instances, whether you're playing as Chris or Jill, that you have to make some very obvious choices. And those obvious choices that you make can dictate who lives and who dies how the game will end, and what ending you ultimately get. I really enjoyed going back and replaying the game a couple different times to see if I can get these different endings. I would make different obvious choices, but some other choices too, um, just in the course of gameplay, would actually dictate what certain events played out. Great example is Jill again. Barry's your partner throughout this whole adventure, and, and when you split off in the very beginning from the dining room and you go your separate ways, Jill says that she's going to check out the room across from the dining room. And Barry specifically says, let's stick to the first floor. So naturally, my first playthrough, I stick to the first floor. I play through those certain events and get my ending and, and, and go about my day, right? But if you decide not to go on the first floor and you go to the second floor first, there's some areas that Barry will appear in. It'll even be said in dialogue. Barry, I thought you were going to be on the first floor. I mean, he has every right to yell at us, but he doesn't. He just says, ah, something I wanted to check. Anyway, I'll see you later. But then if you go back down to the first floor like you were supposed to and play through different areas there, after you talk to Barry on the second floor, Barry will not be on the first floor. So there'll be certain cutscenes that you won't get. And if I'm not mistaken, and, and I didn't touch on this earlier, so shame on me, but I want to go back to that shotgun really quick. To get the shotgun, it's actually in a room, that, and it's hanging on a picture frame, right? And when you pick up the shotgun, the two little hooks that it's on actually go up, and you hear this clicking sound. I mean, not an obvious trap or anything, but when you go into the next room, the door locks behind you, and the ceiling actually starts to come down on your character. You have to go back into that room, put the shotgun down to reset this trap, and you've got to find another way to get the shotgun. And I won't spoil how you do it, but when you're playing as Jill, though, if she takes the shotgun and she waits long enough, the doors will actually lock and you're actually stuck in that room. And Barry will actually come and break the door down, bypassing all the stuff you need to do to even get the shotgun in the first place and save Jill's life calling her a Jill sandwich in the same breath. <laughs> if I recall correctly, when I played this game through another time, and I went to the second floor and talked to Barry up there, Barry did not save Jill downstairs when she went to go get the shotgun. So she, indeed, turned into a Jill sandwich. So that's another part of the game that I really liked, is, is you can get different cutscenes depending on how you play and what your how, how you dictate your actions and where you go and stuff like that, too. So... Oh, man. All right. I am just over an hour on this puppy, and I, I think that's probably a good place to stop. I, I know I missed a lot of things. I, I could probably drone on about this game for a long time, but this game is a really awesome game, and it really, like I said, it really made a big impact on me as a gamer. 
I and I had some good memories too. I mean, I, I get why my stepdad didn't let me play the game initially, but I, I love the fact that eventually his icy heart thawed and he let me play that game with him. And then eventually I got really good at the game and it just it helped spawn a really unique relationship with my stepdad. And I think that's probably one of the big things why this game sticks with me in my memories is those memories that I made with him. Even some of the not so good ones. <laughs> Real quick, I remember I remember being grounded, and of course when I got grounded, the first thing I lost was was the PlayStation. He took me over to a friend of his house uh, one day, and we were over there for like I don't even I don't even know why, but we were over there for like four or five hours. And his friend's kids had a PlayStation, and they had Resident Evil. So what do I want to do? I want to play Resident Evil, and I can't. So I'm watching these kids play this game, and they're just they're just awful, right? And I'm just I'm just like, oh my god, please let me play this game and show you how to play it. And I can't remember how I did it, but I convinced my stepdad to let me play the PlayStation while I was at this guy's house because we were there for so long. And I remember playing this game start to finish as Jill, explaining to them where all the secrets were, and these kids were just in awe of me. Like, I was nothing less than a god playing this game and showing them how to find the different secrets and, oh, when I told them that the Magnum was available in this game, they could get the Colt Python. I'm like, you see that gun that Barry's got? Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. You want me to get it? <gasps> Just gasps. They're like, you can get that gun? And I showed him how to get it, and I started shooting zombies with it, and their heads are exploding, and man, I was, I was king of the playground that day. <laughs> so just memories like that I'll, I'll never i'll never forget so that's all i got when it comes to resident evil my friends i, I i'm really looking forward to talking about some more down the road i mean resident evil 2 resident evil 3 were games that i played I, i'm pretty sure i played them with my stepdad as well but they made a big mark on me as as a gamer and i i really hope that if for some reason you're, you're listening to this and you have not played these games, I implore you to find a way to play these games. I, I think every gamer should have this experience with these older games, and I think that, I think you owe it to yourselves to just give these games a whirl. That was Resident Evil for the original Sony PlayStation. Thank you very much for listening to the Retro Wildlands, everybody. I really do appreciate you giving us the time. The next couple episodes, we're going to have A Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past for the Super Nintendo, and Parasite Eve for the Sony PlayStation. I don't know which of those is going to be episode number two, but it'll be one of those two. So I guess uh, keep an eye out on social media for whichever one I decide on. And speaking of social media, just to plug those one more time, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Retro Wildlands. I also have that YouTube channel where I'm going to be doing a little bit more in-depth retro game reviews. You can find us at Nomads Retro Wildlands. And then my unfinished Twitch account is also at Nomads Retro Wildlands. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next Thursday with another episode. Until then, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. 